Welcome into Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace, coming at you. It is Monday, January 29th. What is up, everybody? I hope you guys had an awesome week of watching NBA action. This is far and away my favorite week of NBA basketball we have had of the new season, and we are going to talk all about it. Just to kind of recap some of the stuff we're going to be going through today, I did go to my first Mavericks game, had the opportunity to watch my Celtics when they were in Dallas earlier last week. We had four 60-plus point games, two of those games in which star players scored over 70 points. I'm sure you guys have heard that news by now. In addition to a significant trade, we had some trade talk going on. Involves one of the teams I believe is a contender in the Eastern Conference. A shocking coaching change. And then to top it all off, we had a game of the year candidate. Definitely the game of the year so far on Saturday night between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Golden State Warriors. And of course, it is all-star season. So at the end of this episode, stay tuned for my full NBA All-Star Rosters. Guys, jam-packed episode. Let's not waste any time and let's get right into it. So I know that this is over a week old at this point when the Mavericks were in town, or the Celtics were in town, rather, playing the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, I just wanted to make some observations because I'm not going to as many in-person NBA games as I'd like to these days. But being in the building for this one, I just wanted to go over some of the few things that jumped out at me while I was there in person. First and foremost, probably the largest basketball observation I had was just the way that Drew Holiday plays defense. Uh, he literally engulfs people. Like, you see the way that dudes are backpedaling when Drew is covering them, and he's just, like, inching toward them, closing off that space. The way he moved defensively was really different than anybody else on the court, and I know that there's some other world-class defenders. All on the Celtics side of things, of course, Dallas is uh, certainly struggling in that department, as we kind of expected. Uh, but the way that Drew played defense was awesome and really exciting to watch. The Celtics looked unstoppable throughout this game, even without Kristaps Porzingis, uh, which I was pretty disappointed that Kristaps wasn't playing. I was hoping for a revenge game on his former team, the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, but when, they, when the Celtics were matchup hunting, especially hunting Luka on basically every play, you know, the combination of Tatum and Brown was really something to watch, especially in a game where, like, look, when Dallas has that many poor matchups or any team that Celtics are playing has that many poor individual defenders and Tatum and Brown are both cooking like they were. I think Tatum had over 40 and Brown had, like, 39 or something like that. It was easy pickings for them. And then finally, on the Mavericks side of things, just Luka's body language was way worse than even I was anticipating. Like, I know you see him complain more than probably any other player in the NBA. And I say that as a guy who loves Luka, who is in support, and any, any sort of expectations I had for the Mavericks this season were because of my belief in Luka Doncic as a player. He was my pick for MVP, and I think we certainly can't rule that out after some of the performances he had this past week. But either way, he was terrible on the court like every play he's not getting back anything that's not going his way it's definitely a boy who cried wolf situation with the officials like he's he's complaining about calls where you'll see a replay and he wasn't even touched it's really out of control and i think at this point it actually reflects on the coaching in dallas i've always been a, a you know a starch opponent of jason kidd i think he's a terrible coach and i think the mavericks would be much better suited to move in a different direction and just the way that luca was out of control throughout that whole game you know, I think that that reflects poorly on the coaching staff because obviously everybody's at the mercy of your star players, but having a guy like Luca literally do whatever he wants just shows that there's nobody in the locker room really holding him accountable for just about anything, especially in a game where I know that I say that Luca had a bad game and then you look at the box score and you're like, Nick, 
what are you talking about? I promise that despite the fact that Luka finished with 33, 18, and 13 against my Celtics, he actually had a really bad game for his standards. He missed a few really easy layups. He had uh, obviously some uncharacteristic turnovers on lobs, which he was kind of forcing the issue. Overall, it was a bad Luka game, but even then he filled up the box score. He was still magnificent to watch at times, but just his body language, he was just so demonstrative that I was just blown away. And even for somebody that obviously watches a lot of Mavericks. So that was kind of my big takeaways from Mavericks Celtics. I'll hopefully get to a few more Mavericks games in the near future, uh, but wanted to start off with that. And now, now that that's out of the way, we do have a pretty important trade to talk about that happened earlier last week as well. This could be old news by the time that you, I'm actually recording this and you guys are hearing it, but it was worth going over either way because I wanted to give my thoughts. And this was, of course, a trade between the Miami Heat and the Charlotte Hornets. Now, very simple deal, really easy to understand here. The Miami Heat, they received Terry Rozier and that Charlotte Hornets received Kyle Lowry, his expiring contract, and a 2027 first-round pick. Uh, that first-round pick is lottery-protected and would convert into an unprotected pick in 2028 if it doesn't convey. So a decent pick right there that the Hornets are able to pick up. But yeah, man, I mean, Terry Rozier is a guy that I, even I forgot about, right? Like, he started his career with the Celtics. I absolutely loved him. He actually had some really exciting playoff moments for the Seas for his first couple years of his career that he was in Boston. And he's just been rotting away in Charlotte ever since. He was kind of like an afterthought in the Celtics' ability to sign Kemba Walker. Rozier has been in Charlotte ever since and has just been rotting away. And when I was actually making my roster for the NBA All-Star teams last week at this point, and of course did some edits before this pod, I was kind of sorting by points per game just to make sure I didn't miss anybody that obviously wasn't the only stat I used to create my All-Star rosters. But I was like, Terry Rozier's at 23 a game? Like, that's... That seems high, and he was he's really having a career year by all accounts, and obviously just, again, a guy that's actually had some playoff experience, a guy that is, is certainly fearless out there, can take and make tough shots, and like I said, when I was debating whether or not putting the Heat in contenders when I did my tier ranking a couple weeks ago, you know, my biggest holdup was I'm like, dude, I think Kyle Lowry's toast. I think he's absolutely washed. For Miami to expect them to get anything from that spot, even in the playoffs, is is really optimistic. And, of course, Miami was able to capitalize on that, improve that spot. They also, you know, really make up for it by having Tyler Hero, who was out for the entirety of that playoff run. I know that they lost Gabe Vincent. I know that they also lost Max Struess. But I think, overall, the Heat are a better team than what they were last year because of Jaime Jaquez. The rookie minutes that they're getting from him are incredible. The addition of Terry Rozier and, obviously, having Tyler Hero return to the roster. Miami's scary. And I know that they're in the midst of a slide. And, and you really have to kind of look at Miami through a different lens with what they showed us last year, obviously making it all the way to the NBA finals as an eight seed. Like, you know, you can make fun of Miami for sliding and shitting their pants against the Celtics earlier this week where they looked awful and they were at full strength and whatever. But still, you, you have to kind of look through this team as a different lens because they're still ahead of schedule of where they were last year. And we all know what that coaching staff and what that team kind of turns into in the playoffs. So again, the Heat receiving Terry Rozier for Kyle Lowry in a first round pick. I obviously love this deal for Miami. I think it makes them significantly scarier for everybody that has to go through Miami to get through a championship. And I think from the Hornets side of things, I mean, look, it's, it's a good first for what it's worth. Like, that should be a pretty valuable pick. You know, I'm sure they're hoping that it becomes an unprotected the following year. But if this is a Miami pick, they never really bottom out. It's not that valuable. You would have hoped that they could have maybe recouped a little bit more. Uh, I understand that you can look at it like, hey, they got off of Rozier's money. Uh, Rozier has a few more years left in his contract where Lowry isn't expiring and they have the cap space. But, like, who's in their right mind is ever going to sign in Charlotte? Like, maybe there's some folks out there that want to play with LaMelo. I'm, I'm unsure of that. But the, the vibes in Charlotte are pretty bad. So, I mean, this is kind of the bare minimum that you can expect for a guy that's scoring, you know, 23 points a game and is having a really awesome year in Terry Rozier. So, 
Love that move for Miami Heat as much as it makes me sick to say because I hate to see the Heat improve their roster, but they definitely did with the move to acquire Terry Rozier. Moving on, we have to talk about a coaching change. Now, out of all of the storylines this week, and there were a ton of them, I think the most fascinating storyline came out of Milwaukee and their decision for the Bucks to move on from their new-ish head coach, Adrian Griffin, in exchange for tried-and-true Doc Rivers. So let's get into it, man. At the time that the Bucks fired their head coach, Adrian Griffin, he was 30-13 and 13 and had the second-best record in the Eastern Conference. The time of firing him again, they were the two-seed behind only the Celtics, and I think they had, actually, the second-best record in the entire NBA behind only the Celtics. For those that are really close to the situation and follow the Bucks religiously, you guys understand that Despite that record being quite good, obviously probably exactly where you thought you would be as fans of the team before the season, it was a little bit misleading, right? There were some major issues from the Bucs, mainly on defense, and it was pretty obvious to anybody that watched the game that was the case, right? Adrian Griffin was known for his defensive philosophy during his time with the Toronto Raptors, most notably winning a championship as an assistant coach for that 2019 Raptors team that beat Golden State in those finals. And essentially, he had an older roster of not great defensive talent all around. Like, obviously, you can point to guys like Brooke Lopez and Giannis and say, wow, you know, they still have a lot of talent there. But when you go from having Drew Holiday, obviously the best guard defender probably in the entire NBA, to Damian Lillard, potentially the worst guard defender in the NBA, that's going to be a significant downgrade for a roster that's already the oldest in the NBA and only seemingly getting older, right? And so he was basically, he as in Coach Griffin was having the Bucks be a lot more aggressive with their defensive strategy, right? Instead of always having, you know, Brooke Lopez dropping to the basket, he was asking guys like Brooke Lopez and Giannis to pressure guys further away from the basket, be more aggressive with their perimeter defense, trap guys, move their feet, switch onto smaller players, just be really aggressive. And, and it was just a strategy that wasn't paying off at all. You know, right before they made the decision to fire Adrian Griffin, the Bucks had two almost losses to the Pistons in which they couldn't get a stop on literally the worst team in basketball. Like, Again, they were just winning every game in shootout fashion. I think their defense was ranked like 26, depending on the metric you look at in the entire league, which just isn't going to cut it, right? I, I don't think, despite the fact that Milwaukee is still really scary, and I take them seriously as a contender in the league, maybe it's just recency bias for what they did to my Celtics a couple weeks back, but I still respect the Bucks and certainly respect everything that Giannis brings to the table, but I don't think a lot of people close to the team felt like they could win a championship with some of the issues that they had going on, and they didn't have a lot of moves to make around the deadline to fix the personnel on this team, so they really had to make a change with the coaching. And now I do have an ESPN insider who has given me some really great intel on exactly how this went down with the Bucks. And so... With the Bucks, there's an older guard of the 2021 team that ended up winning that championship over the Phoenix Suns that is a very tight-knit group in the locker room. And sources tell words with Wallace that essentially the old guard lost faith in head coach Adrian Griffin. These guys, you know, you can kind of figure out exactly who they are, right? Guys like Giannis, guys like Chris Middleton, guys like Brooke Lopez, Bobby Portis, another member of uh, Giannis's family. All those guys felt like they missed Coach Bud. They didn't understand the new defensive schemes that weren't working. And overall, the feeling was like, hey, this old guard on the Bucks team, they know how to win a championship. They've done it before. But they didn't feel like Adrian Griffin was the guy that could lead them to a championship because they had a guy in the locker room that had never done it as a head coach. Again, obviously, Adrian Griffin was a, a very important part of that Raptors team, by all accounts, that won the 2019 title. But he wasn't in charge. He wasn't leading that locker room day in and day out. And essentially, the old guard in the Bucks locker room just lost faith in the guy. They were starting to tune him out. 
And you could see it even after they made the decision to fire him, right? The Bucks are like dancing in warmups. Like they're like literally old guys like Brooke and Robin Lopez are, you know, moving and grooving before the game. You don't, you don't often see that for a team to have that much jubilance for a random January matchup. But of course, it showed that, hey, the Bucks obviously had to make a decision because they had lost faith of, you know, their locker room, essentially. And when you have a star player like Giannis, who has already, you know, if there's anybody that's going to bleed over into that control of, of borderline or ownership of the team with how much they have to appease everything that guy says, you have to think that someone like Giannis was done with Coach Griffin and wanted to bring in somebody that had won a championship and was more of a leader of men, if you will. And that brings them to the decision to hire head coach Doc Rivers to take over this team. Now, Doc is not without his warts, right? I think the struggles of Doc Rivers since his 2008 championship run with the Celtics have been well-documented, right? I think he's blown, what, three different 3-1 series lead? This is actually the most damning Doc Rivers stat I've ever come across. Doc Rivers is 16-33 and in the playoffs when his team has three wins. So think about that. When his team has a chance to close out a playoff series, he is 16-33. and Yikes, that is not great. So obviously, yes, Doc is not without his warts. Overall, my thoughts on the deal is based on the inside sources that I have, and I trust those sources, I think the move makes sense. Now, obviously, Doc isn't the prototypical candidate you'd like to bring in in this situation, and you probably could have done better than Doc Rivers if you had maybe just made the decision to not hire Adrian Griffin, and if you had the full array of coaches that were available this offseason, like obviously the decision to not go after a guy like Nick Nurse, or maybe they did go after Nick Nurse and they just weren't able to secure him and Nick Nurse wanted to go to Philly for whatever reason. I find that hard to believe. But either way, when guys like Nick Nurse are out there and you come to the table with Adrian Griffin and then you have to fire him before the All-Star break, that's a terrible look. But I, I do think the Bucks' situation this season is pretty similar to the situation that my Celtics were in last year, at least as a fan, right? Because as, as I was watching last year's Celtics team, there were there were major red flags with Joe Mazzulla. And I know that he finished like second or third for coach of the year or something like that. But that's because that award is kind of bullshit. And it, it really, that award just represents what coach exceeded expectations the most. And you could argue that Joey Maz exceeded expectations the most just because he was a rookie head coach and the nature in which he was hired right before the season and all this stuff. And the, and the Celtics were obviously great during the regular season and, you know, for portions of the playoffs. But either way... For real Celtics fans watching the team, they knew that there were real issues with the Celtics and their late-game execution. Some of the start-sit decisions at the end of the game were mind-boggling. Guys like Derek White just weren't getting minutes at the end of games because it seemed like Joey Maz was terrified to bench guys like Marcus Smart, who really just didn't have it on the same level as guys like Derek White last year. And it just felt like the team that the Celtics had and the talent on that roster was like a Ferrari. And we had a 16-year-old with the keys driving that thing, and it felt terrible. We're like, how are we going to win a championship if our head coach doesn't have tried and true assistants backing him up and can't figure out the way to manage this team and get late game stops, late game baskets when the team needs it the most, you know, that was really damning. And the Celtics just kind of knew that. And I think they actually doubled down and extended Missoula in the middle of the season last year to try to give him like a, a vow of confidence and, and faith from the organization, which I'm sure helped Missoula in some capacity. But it was really frustrating as Celtics fans because we're like, now we're just stuck with this guy. The Bucs at least had the realization that they were in an unsustainable situation with a coach that they did not believe could win them a championship. And they had the balls, despite the record, to actually move on from the guy. And if he lost faith of the locker room and he lost faith of guys like Giannis and they didn't think they were going to win a championship, it sucks. And it's a bad look to fire a guy like that with the success that he had 
But real ones around the team knew that it wasn't going to work, and so they moved on from it the second they came to that realization. Once they knew it was untenable and they were not going to win a championship with this guy, they moved on from it. And so for that, I respect them because they've certainly taken a lot of heat for hiring a guy like Doc Rivers with those well-documented playoff works that we've talked about. But look, Doc knows how to lead men. By all accounts, he's fantastic with superstars and handling different egos and different personalities. So you got to think guys like Dame and Giannis will be happy with that you know, stern voice and, and someone that really knows how to motivate guys. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm never going to rule out Milwaukee. They were contenders before this transaction. I believe they're contenders afterward. And a lot of smart basketball minds seem to think that hiring Doc Rivers was the right fit for this team at this point in time. And so it'll be very interesting to see how this works out in Milwaukee. Hard pivot here, and we have to talk about some of the most insane scoring performances of all time that we've seen in the NBA this past week. I'm not sure if this is an exact stat, but I'm going to say it with confidence. This has to be the first time we've had four 60-point games in the same week. This has to be the first time it happened, so I'm just going to stamp that, put it on the record right now. And we have to start with the Kentucky duo that scored 62 points each in separate losses over the past week. So... When I was at the Celtics game on Monday, I was actually a little upset for a second because when I started to check the box scores around the NBA and I saw that Cat had 62 points in a loss and Embiid had 70 points in a win, which we're going to get to, I was like, damn, I missed a really good league pass night, but that's okay. I had a lot of fun watching the Celtics beat the crap out of the Mavericks that night. But we have to talk about, let's, let's start off with Towns, right? Because I think this one was the most fascinating. The, the, the Hornets were playing in Minnesota and Cat was just cooking early on. He was shooting the lights out, hitting threes left and right. Finishes the game with 62 points, 8 rebounds, 2 assists on 60% shooting from the field and 67% shooting from deep. It's not often you see a big man shoot a better percentage from 3 than he does, you know, just overall from the field. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. But to close the game for the Timberwolves, Cat actually shot 2 of 10 in the fourth quarter and finished the game with 7 turnovers. Now, he still had 62 points. He still had a career night. Uh, you know, obviously he was incredible in the first half so I don't want to throw too much shade at this guy but the fact that the Wolves on a night where Towns was just had flames shooting out his ass that they end up losing at home to the Charlotte Hornets who at the time I believe had single digit wins as the number one seed in the West the Timberwolves are just trying to give us reasons to like not trust them and I think that that post-game press conference from head coach Chris Finch was really telling I mean he torched Towns he torched the whole team just talking about how it was disgusting how it was embarrassing that the team was basically hunting stats for a big performance instead of prioritizing the win and if you watch the game back that would like I did that's exactly what happened right I mean there was definitely some moments where guys were forcing the ball into Cat's hands and I think in some ways that's positive right like guys like Anthony Edwards are trying to give the ball to the hot hand and even though there's more talented players on that roster they felt like Cat was cooking that night and they wanted to do everything they can to ha have their big man have a career night so in some ways you can look at it as a, as a positive but the fact that they weren't able to win that game over the Charlotte Hornets at home is embarrassing so I thought that that was easily the most disappointing of the 60 plus point games a loss to the Hornets at home for the Timberwolves is tough. I mean, again, they are still sitting at the number one seed in the Western Conference at the time I'm recording this. But yeah, that was a pretty funny storyline out of Minnesota. And then you had, later in the week, Devin Booker go for 62 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists on 60% shooting and 50% shooting from 3 specifically. Really incredible game from Book. Just like Towns got super hot early on in the game, was blazing. I think he had basically 40 points by halftime. And really, Pacers had no answer for Devin Booker throughout. But later on in this game, the Pacers just came alive. 
really tough team to beat, even without Tyrese Halliburton. At least this one was on Indiana's home court. So when, you know, the Pacers kind of got momentum late in that fourth quarter and were making the comeback, that place was nuts. The field house was going crazy. It was a really exciting game to watch live. And really, it was just came down to the Suns' lack of being able to get stops, right? Like guys like Aaron Neesmith and, you know, Benedict Matherin and Andrew Nemhar, but just filling in, getting buckets left and right. Really great game from Pascal Siakam. He had 30-plus in this one, and it just came down to the Suns' defense. Like, I think Book was still cooking. He had, like, over 10 points in the fourth quarter for the Suns. This was just really a matter of the Suns, you know, their defensive struggles kind of rearing their head again, and despite them being at full strength, you got guys like Yusuf Nurkic putting up two points in the box score. You know, that's going to be tough against any team, even an Indiana team that's missing their NBA All-Star starter. Uh, so really tough stuff out of the Suns right there. But again, the Booker performance was awesome. I, you know, don't necessarily love Devin Booker, the guy. I think a lot of the stuff he does can be corny. And I think just some of his reputation of maybe trying to be a little bit tougher than he is can rub people the wrong way. But just as like a, a hooper, I, I love his game. I love the way he he takes and makes tough shots. Like the highlight reel from that game was unbelievable. So it is unfortunate for Buck that he was able to, you know, had to take an L on this one despite the good game and even finishing the game pretty strong. But Notable to see that 60 points just couldn't get it done for the Suns. And now we have to go on to the truly historic stuff where we had Joel Embiid and Luka Doncic both going for 70 points or more in the past week. Let's start off with Embiid, man, because I missed this game live again being at the Celtics game. But he finishes with 70 points, 18 rebounds, 5 assists on 59% shooting from the field and making 21 of 23 free throws. I think if I had to rank like the the level of defense that each guy faced throughout this performance of the 60 plus point games. I think Embiid, the defense that he faced from the Spurs was the worst. Like I couldn't believe some of the decisions that the Spurs made. And again, maybe it's just because I wasn't watching it in real time, but the, the way they were just backpedaling, like the whole Spurs roster seemed to be terrified of Joel Embiid, just like crossing them over and, and blowing by them from the mid range just made no sense to me. They, they just repeatedly seemingly let Joel Embiid, take like wide open mid-range jumpers at the free throw line which is where he just butters his bread and I don't think I've seen him miss one of those shots like all year long uh really awesome stuff from Embiid and, and they really didn't need the performance for the most part like really not a ton of stat padding in any of these performances because all four games were pretty close down the stretch and uh, obviously would have liked to see more fight out of Wemby and Pop in this one and Wemby did some really crazy shit on the other end as well but Overall, just an incredible game for Embiid to score, you know, 70 points. Just really special stuff. And then finally, the best performance of the week has to go to Luka Doncic. Going for 73 points against the Atlanta Hawks. Also chipped in 10 rebounds and 7 assists. And the shooting percentages in this one are just insane. It's the most efficient 60-point game ever by really any metric that you look at. Luka actually shot 76% from the field and 62% from three. Also chipping in 15 of 16 free throws. This was just a clinic. Like, if you go back and watch the YouTube video, every point of Luka Doncic's 73-point night or whatever, it's insane. Like, I know the Hawks' defense is, is is bad. Like, they're a terrible defensive team. We know that about the Hawks. And, and some of the baskets early on were pretty comical how wide open Luka was. But I would say from the second quarter onward, like, because Luka was obviously on this early. He had over 40 points at halftime. The Hawks could recognize what was happening. And so they did kind of dial up the defense pretty early on in that second quarter. And just the shot making was insane. Like, I think he hit eight threes. I, I think about six of them were probably step backs, hand in the face, great contest, you know, getting to the basket. I know that there's something nonchalant about Lucas' game and, and the pace that he plays at, but it was, it was unbelievable. And, and I, I truly think, 
you know, I was going to go on some tangent about, you know, the way that Kobe scored his 81 points was so impressive because the spacing was so bad back then. And there's just like five guys in the paint seemingly. And, and Kobe's just jumping through them, getting to the basket, getting to the free throw line. Didn't even take that many threes in that one. Like, you know, just kind of going on about how different it was to score those big performances back in the early 2000s. And for the most part, I stand by that because we're just way smarter with spacing and how offenses work and the shots that these star players are taking and all the analytics that goes into it. But this one was kind of like an exception. Like this was just a, a bucket factory from Luca. And it's obviously not a coincidence. He did this in Atlanta. Of course, the team that drafted him immediately traded him for Trey, Trey Young. I mean, nobody wins like the NBA wins during rivalry week that clearly Luca took, you know, the frustrations of the previous few games, right? Like I know the Mavericks had a really embarrassing loss to the Suns earlier in the week. And of course the loss to my Celtics at home on like five or six days of rest at that point. But Luca bounces back in a big way and, you know, really could have saved himself from a PR nightmare that was coming with just kind of the, the downturn of the Mavericks and maybe people around the team getting tired of his antics. But, you know, he answered in a big way and had easily the best performance of anybody the entire season. I don't think anybody's going to top it either. But this was easily one of my favorite games to watch I've ever seen and had the privilege of watching that one live. It was special stuff at Aluka on Friday night. Finally, we have to get into what I believe is far and away the game of the year so far. Los Angeles Lakers in Golden State. It's always nice when you get the Saturday ABC matchup between two headliners and it actually delivers. Now, maybe you can argue the fact that both the Lakers and the Warriors are under 500. Maybe cast like a negative cloud over this game and, and that makes it a little bit less fun. But like when I tell you that this game delivered... Double overtime, the Lakers end up coming out on top, what was it, 145 to 144 or something like that. I was a little upset. Of course, I'm going to pull for Golden State in a game like that. But either way, the, the stats in this game were bonkers, and it's not just because it went to double overtime. Like, that's obviously a part of it. But Braun and Steph were playing at, like, their apex, and it was just special to watch. I mean, Braun finishes a game with 36 points, 20 boards, 12 assists. D'Angelo Russell, who's been on fire, and I want to say he's averaging like 27 points a game over his last 10 or something like that, continues to stay hot for the Lakers, chipping in 28 points and had a few really clutch shots down the stretch for the Lakers as well. Jared Vanderbilt, sneaky my guy, haven't had a, the opportunity to talk much about his performance this season. He was super hurt for you know basically the first 30 games of the season and whatnot, but chipped in with, he was a plus 29 in the box score and had 14 points and four steals off the bench for the Lakers and played... Really good defense on Steph, not that it ended up mattering a ton. But either way, Steph finished with 46 points himself and had just all-time Steph shot-making down the stretch. Draymond chipped in 8 points, 14 boards, 11 assists, and was plus 31 for Golden State in this one. Mike Breen. Nobody performed quite like Mike Breen in the Saturday ABC on ESPN. Like He was so good on all the calls. He gave Steph a double bang at one point. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that might be the first time he's given a, a double bang in a loss. You know, the, the bang, bang, you know, like when if he hits you with two of those, what are, what are the team's winning percentage? It's got to be, it's got to be like 95%. Like if it's ever happened before where he's given a double bang to somebody in a loss worth looking into, I'll, I'll have my analytics people do some research on that. But when I tell you, like, it really did feel like a playoff game. Like I know both teams are struggling, but it is kind of crazy. Like this is, what was the same day that we were supposed to get the Nuggets matchup, you know, Nuggets versus Sixers. Sixers were in Denver for this one. Jokic was going to get his revenge. And then famously in classic Embiid fashion, he just misses the game. He gets ruled last second too. So everybody was paying top dollar for those tickets, expecting to see Embiid versus Jokic. And 
that was a bust. And then sure as shit, the last game of the day delivers in a big way. And guys like Jokic and Bede, you don't get the matchups you want. But guys like Steph and LeBron in those primetime matchups, they still deliver. It was really cool to see. And I think my biggest takeaway from the game itself is that, like, I stand by everything I've ever said about Steph not losing a step. He was so good in this one. And frankly, what helped him out a lot, and, and part of the reason he looked so special, was Draymond was unbelievable for Golden State. Like I mentioned, he was a plus 31 in the box score. And he definitely got away with some really questionable calls. I think he hit people in the face about three or four times just in, like, the closing, you know, fourth quarter and both overtime periods. He probably made contact with somebody's face in the Lakers, like, at least three times during that span. Uh, but that being said, he was he was fantastic for them. Like, he was consistently creating really good shots for Steph. You know, he definitely got away with potentially a flagrant foul where he got somebody there as well. And, you know, it's, it is... In some ways, nice to see that, like, hey, look, like, despite the suspension and all that stuff that he went with, it didn't take away from, you know, the ferocity that he normally plays with that he needs to have. Because if Draymond loses that ed edge, he's toast. Like, in addition to the fact that the shot's obviously not what it was, you know, many years ago at this point. It's actually been better than he's been shooting better this year than the previous few seasons. But either way, like, he, he's a diminished version of himself offensively. He really doesn't score much at all anymore. And so the fact that he, if he does lose that edge on defense, that you know, tenacity that he plays with, he he knows he's going to be washed. And so he didn't let all the bullshit that he's dealt with earlier this season affect his game. And I still really like Draymond, the player, for the most part, uh, and what he brings in the court. But he was really special in this one. And it was just Bron and Steph going back and forth. Clay had some tough shots as well. I just encourage any of you guys to watch, like, the condensed games on YouTube. Like, that's obviously my go-to. I don't sit here and pretend to watch every game. I try to at least see a two- to three-minute highlight reel of every game in the NBA. That's been my challenge to myself over the past month or so. But either way, like, go back, find, like, the 10-minute condensed game on YouTube of, you know, between Golden State and Los Angeles. So you guys are not going to want to miss this. And, you know, my finally, my largest takeaway is, like, this is exactly why I'm hesitant to cross these teams off. I just am. These guys that have gotten it done in the playoffs, that get it done in tough games, like on any given night, you turn on the channel and you can watch these guys and the role players are engaged and playing right. And I don't want to cross them off. Like even Wiggins had a resurgence. He had 20 something points. He looked good. He looked aggressive on the boards. It's like, these are all the little missing pieces for the Warriors all season that haven't been there. And, you know, on, on the Lakers side of things, you got guys like, you know, if D'Lo's going to be playing on a borderline all-star level for them and you're still getting the same production from Braun and AD, like these teams can absolutely still win a title if everything goes right. Now, I obviously feel a little, it's hard to say which team I even feel better about after watching both of those. They both have some question marks and both have some fixes that I don't know if they're going to be able to address at the trade deadline. But this just goes to show is just a big win for the old guys. Big win for nostalgia. Somebody that's obviously, you know, cared deeply about those finals between the Cavs and the Warriors all those years ago. And so it was just special to see LeBron and Steph. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did in this one. Now we have the cherry on top of this jam-packed episode. I need to give you guys my NBA All-Star rosters. Now, I know on my episode last week, if you guys watched toward the end of the episode, I gave... My picks for the starting lineups in each conference with Ian in that Thunder podcast. Now, I just gave my picks if they were up to me for who should be the starters. I didn't do predictions or anything like that. Ultimately, I, I guess kind of four of the five right in each conference. Uh, so I'm mostly happy with those results, and we'll talk about more, that more in a second. But, of course, the NBA did announce the starting lineups in each conference last week. And now, later this week, they will be announcing the reserves. And, of course, that is where... All the arguments are going to break out. People are going to, you know, bitch and moan about the snubs and everything like that. So we're going to get into that. I'm going to give you guys the starters in each conference. I'm going to give you guys my reserves in each conference. And then, of course, I'm going to name some of the most notable 
snubs in each conference as well. And really some of the tough decisions that I had to make because there was at least one, I would say there was exactly one spot in each conference that was extremely tough. And I think in the West, it was a little bit more competitive than it was in the East, but we'll get into all that. So let's start off in the Western Conference and let's go through the starters. Now, the starters were announced in the West as Shea, Luka, Kawhi, LeBron, and Jokic. The only change to that I would have made, I personally would have had Durant starting over LeBron, but you're kind of splitting hairs there. So not a huge difference there, but I feel pretty comfortable with the starting five in the West. Nothing too much to complain about there. The reserves in the West, and just so you guys know how this is all broken out, there's two backcourt players, the so two guards, right? And then three frontcourt players, and then two wildcard spots. So seven players off the bench in each conference. Again, two guards, three frontcourt players, and then two wildcard spots that can be anyone, right? So you have seven players to work with, and I did kind of break it out like that when I was going through and doing this exercise. So my guards for the West off the bench are Anthony Edwards, and Devin Booker. I think those were pretty obvious for me at this point in time. I mean, Anthony Edwards having an unbelievable season. The Timberwolves are the number one seed in the Western Conference. Anthony Edwards is far and away the best player on that team. You'd still love to see him get a little bit more consistent on a night-to-night basis, but I don't think there's much debate about having Ant in the All-Star game. It's well-deserved. Next, we have Devin Booker, like I said. I know he missed some games early on. The Suns have had their struggles, but it's Nothing that I would say is the fault of Devin Booker. He's been unbelievable. He's the closest thing they have to a point guard. He still shoots the lights out of the ball. The shots he takes, the shots he generates for his teammates. There's really no debate about him being on the All-Star as a reserve in the Western Conference. Now we have the three front court spots. And I would say the third front court spot in the West is where I had my biggest debate. But the first two were pretty easy. I obviously am going to have Kevin Durant. I would have had him as a starter. But since LeBron got that nod, Kevin Durant's coming off the bench for me as well as Anthony Davis. It does kind of suck to see two Lakers as all-stars, given their struggles and them being under 500 at this point in time. But that being said, Anthony Davis still definitely deserves it with his impact and everything he does for that Lakers team. And my final front court spot for the reserves in the Western Conference, I had to give the nod to Paul George. This one was really close, and we're going to talk about the snubs in a second, but I just feel like what Paul George is doing, I know it's, you look at the stats and it's, you know, the counting stats anyway, I think it's like 23, 24 points a game, like, you know, Six rebounds, five assists, whatever. But he is playing in basically every game this year for the Clippers. He's been so durable. He's really doing special stuff both sides of the ball, right? The two-way stuff from him has been incredible. He's been really fantastic defensively. He's closed out games for them. I think he's shooting really across the board some of the best percentages of his entire career. I just think this is vintage Paul George that we're getting. I think this is the best season he's had since he was in MVP talks during that year with the Thunder that he had. And so I just had to give the nod to Paul George. I think he's been unbelievable. And I think it's deserving that the Clippers are going to have two all-stars with where they are as a three seed in the West and arguably the hottest team in the NBA. I had to give the nod to Paul George there. And then finally, my two wild card spots for the reserves in the Western conference had to give it to Steph, of course, especially in wake of that incredible performance last week. And then De'Aaron Fox with the final spot. I do believe that De'Aaron Fox is the most valuable player on the Sacramento Kings. Three ball has been unbelievable for Fox this year. Like he's just been great. And as you know, much debate as there was for me going back and forth for that front court spot, I really felt like Steph and Fox both should be locks for their performances this season. Let's, I guess we'll just stay on the West right now because let's talk about the snubs, right? Like let's talk about all the guys I left off. I think the number one player that I went back and forth on between him and Paul George was DeMontis Sabonis. Really insane for me to look, and it's just hard to swallow that I'm leaving somebody that's scoring 20 points a game, 13 rebounds, and 8 assists. 
leaving him off the all-star team in favor of Paul George is definitely questionable. And if you really want to argue Sabonis, like I hear you, man, like I get it. It's just hard for me to put two Kings in the all-star team. And I know that, you know, everything the Kings do is funneled through Fox. It's funneled through Sabonis, but I gave the nod to Fox because I feel like he's more valuable to that team. And, you know, the Kings have been worse than what they were last year. I think they're up to being the five seed in the West, which is certainly respectable, but nothing crazy. And, you know, it, it's tough. I just gave the nod to Paul George because of, I think of what he does on the defensive side of the ball. I think he takes better care of the ball as well. I know Sabonis tends to have a lot of turnovers with that much offense running through him as well. So Sabonis is, is the first and, and probably the largest snub, if you will, in the Western Conference. Followed by Laurie Markkinen, a guy I absolutely love to watch and the Jazz have been on fire lately. And, and Laurie is the star of that team. I wanted to find a way to get my guy Shangun in there. The, the Rockets were off to a hot start if they had... Stayed as hot as they were to start the season. I definitely would have had Shangun on there, but I couldn't quite get there with the record. Zion still has a case to be made. I think he's been playing better ball lately. He certainly looks better to the eye test, and you know he's still incredibly efficient as a scorer, even though he's not filling up the box score a ton in, in terms of rebounds and assists and playmaking and things of that nature. But Zion is still Zion. He's incredible. Couple more snubs for you. You got Jamal Murray. We're still going to have to sit through that narrative of Jamal Murray not being an all-star. Uh, I mean, maybe he ends up getting it just because the Nuggets have been obviously really good and the respect he gained from everybody. But I can't say with a straight face that Jamal Murray has been better this season than Luka, than Shea, than Ant, than Booker, than Steph or Fox. Like, it comes down to you having to bump one of those guys to put Jamal Murray on the All-Star team. And I just can't do that as much as I love Jamal Murray and respect him and fear him in the playoffs. But again, I just couldn't get there with Jamal Murray. So just get ready to sit through Zero time all-star, never made an all-star team, Jamal Murray, once the playoffs roll around and we start watching the Nuggets on a nightly basis. So just keep that in mind. I think Harden also has an argument to be made. He's not going to get it because of you know him quitting on another team this offseason and people being kind of sick of James Harden. But he's been unbelievable on the Clippers. And then the final guy I had listed that came to mind was Rudy Gobert because Rudy Gobert has been the anchor of the NBA's best defense and crucial to everything that the Timberwolves are doing. And been having a much better season than what he had last year. As it comes back to with all all-star snub arguments, if you're going to make the case that player X should be in the all-star team, then you have to tell me not just that he should be in the all-star team, but who does he bump? Because it is competitive. The league is better than it's ever been. There's more talent in the NBA than ever before. So if you're going to tell me somebody is a snub and they should be upset because player X didn't make it, then tell me who they're bumping out. If you watch Jamal Murray in there, tell me why he deserves it over Steph or at least make a good argument and then I'll hear you out. That's all I ask. Moving on. Let's move on to the Eastern Conference here. Again, the starters in the East were announced earlier last week. Tyrese Halliburton, Damian Lillard, Giannis, Tatum, and Embiid. The only change I would have made is I would have had Jalen Brunson over Damian Lillard. I think for the heater that the Knicks have been on, and Brunson's just been instrumental in that. He's been the leader of that team. He gets some incredible shots down the stretch, averaging over 30 points a game ever since they got OG Ananobi, and that team's been taken to another level. I think Brunson should have been the starter, but either way, not too upset with Dame getting the nod because he was still on my roster. Let's move on to the first two guards off the bench in the Eastern Conference. Obviously, Jalen Brunson is that guard for me since he did not get the starting spot. Everything I just said about him remains true. Also, Donovan Mitchell. I mean, Mitchell has been amazing. I know there's some weird vibes around Mitchell, and I still think that he might get moved before the trade deadline, and that wouldn't be all too surprising given his inclination of maybe not wanting to stay in Cleveland long term, but he's been instrumental in, in everything the Cavs have done lately. Like I said, they've actually got on a run and improved their team, improved their record ever since Mobley and Garland went down. And Mitchell's just been unbelievable ever since then. So no brainer to have Donovan Mitchell on my all-star team. Now we have the three front court spots again off the bench for the Eastern Conference. I have Jalen Brown, 
feel like it's pretty obvious, right? The Celtics are the best team in basketball, and Brown has been really on fire, I think, playing some of the best basketball of his whole career. Is he worth that contract? That's not the question. We're talking all-star. I think Jalen Brown's an easy addition. The next front court spot, my guy, Paolo Bencaro. He's been unbelievable for the Magic this year. I have had so much fun watching Paolo. I feel like there is definitely a, a step down from the Western Conference when you look at the front court reserves. The East is actually a lot weaker, but I was really happy to get Paolo in there. I feel really good about that selection. The Magic are a playoff team. They've been really unhealthy all season, like basically everybody but Paolo. He's been the only consistent there. They were missing Wagner for a stretch of time. They were missing Wendell Carter. They're missing Markel Fultz. I love watching his game and what he can do in isolation situations, and it's really exciting to see him hopefully make an all-star team in his second season. The final front court spot, Bam Adebayo. I felt like I needed to have somebody from the Miami Heat there, and Jimmy Butler has already missed 15 games. Bam's having a career year, at least statistically. He's still unbelievable on the defensive side of the court as well, so feel pretty good about putting Bam in there. Now, finally, we have the last two wildcard spots. The first one's easy for me, Tyrese Maxey. I believe Philly is the third seed in the Eastern Conference to this day. Fantastic shooting percentages, like always. He's really taken that leap, and it is just a huge reason that Philly has actually gotten better since the departure of, of James Harden. I don't think there's a lot of debate around Tyrese Maxey. And the final wildcard spot, I'm still going back and forth at the point of recording this. I'm actually going to go with Trey Young. That's really controversial, really just because with how bad Atlanta's been and them being currently the 10th seed in the Eastern Conference, there's an argument to be made that Atlanta should have exactly zero All-Stars on the team. And I just think it comes down to the statistical profile and everything Trey represents for that offense is, is hard to beat. I think he's putting up 27 points a game, at least 11, 12 assists as well. I, the shooting percentage is at least from three or up a little bit. The turnovers are still higher than you'd like to see. And there's always a question with how bad Trey is on defense. Is he really contributing to winning basketball? That I don't know, but I think he is just so individually talented, especially on the offensive end of the court. It's hard to leave a guy like Trey out of the all-star game. And I think he'd be a fun player that the fans would want to see, uh, of course, for all-star weekend as well. So who are the snubs in the Eastern Conference? Let's cover that as well. Some of the ones that come to mind. Two of my Celtics, of course, because I'm biased. I think you could have definitely made an argument for Kristaps Porzingis. Just the Celtics looked like a totally different team when Kristaps isn't on the court. You saw that when they got their clocks cleaned by the Clippers earlier this week. I know Derek White, my other Celtic that had some real all-star buzz, like the value. You couldn't really pick a more opposite player between... Derek White and Trey Young, the guy that I ultimately ended up having in that spot. If you want to say Derek White because of how he contributes to winning, because of the clutch shot making, because of everything he brings from the defensive end of the court, never see a guy like Derek White ever really make mistakes. And so that's why I think he had some real all-star balls for a second. Some other snubs, Julius Randle. He's had a really good season this year. I know he started off really rocky and the three-point shooting is actually down quite a bit from last year. But the positive thing is that the attempts from three are down quite a bit for Julius Randle as well. I think he's obviously been a really important part of the Knicks being one of the hottest teams in basketball over the last month or so. And the two other snubs that came to mind were Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam. I just don't think Toronto has been competitive enough for me to warrant having a Raptor in there, but both of their seasons have been really strong. Maybe Siakam more so than, than Scotty, just because he's continued that performance onto his new team. He's been off to a hot start with Indiana as well. But still, I mean, there's so much talent in the NBA. If you want to tell me a guy like Derek White should go... In the All-Star game over Trey Young, that's fine. But again, if you're going to tell me this person snubbed, they should have been in the All-Star team, just make sure you say who you're bumping out because it's a really tough exercise. Before I go, I do just want to recap my All-Star teams in each roster. Of course, the starters in the West are Shea, Luka, Kawhi, LeBron, and Jokic. And so for my reserves, I have Ant, Booker, Durant, AD, Paul George, Steph Curry, and De'Aaron Fox. 
In the East, the starters are Tyrese Halliburton, Damian Lillard, Giannis, Tatum, and Embiid. And my reserves are Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson, Jalen Brown, Paulo Bancaro, Bam Adebayo, Tyrese Maxey, and Trey Young. So again, the last the spots that I was most questionable about were Paul George and Trey Young. If you want to put in guys like Sabonis or Porzingis over them, I get it. But that's ultimately where I landed. I'm super excited to see the reserves and exactly when they're announced and see what the perception is of these reserves once they are announced to see exactly what I would have done differently. If there's anybody I feel really passionate about, if they leave a guy like Darren Fox off the team or leave a guy like Paulo off the team, I'll be pretty upset about that. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. But again, guys, thanks for sticking with me during a jam-packed episode after my favorite week of basketball of the entire NBA season so far. Next week, I hopefully will have a guest on to do a deep dive on one of the league's hotter teams, and we will talk about that then. Otherwise, expect an all-star reaction and all that fun stuff from me either way. Before I let you guys go, be sure to follow at Words with Wallace on everything that includes Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. That includes YouTube. That includes Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok these days. Got to catch the reels and all the good stuff I'm doing there. At Words with Wallace on all those platforms, be sure to follow, subscribe, like, and share the show. Tell a friend, and I will talk to you guys next week. Peace. Peace.